Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Harrison Podcast. We're going to take a break this week from the topic-focused episodes so that I can take some time to answer questions that have been submitted by you, the listeners. If you have a question that you weren't able to get to me in time, please feel free to submit it on the Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Harrison Podcast, all one word, or in a comment on the blog at whhpodcast.blueberry.com, and that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, or by email at Harrison Podcast, again, all one word, at gmail.com. In the meantime, we've got some great questions that have come in, so let's get started. The first question was, did the populace know of Harrison's health problems during the election? Did he? The overall populace did not know of his health status. Indeed, in a time where we're inundated with the media analyzing every aspect of a candidate's health, physical characteristics, and so forth, It's hard to imagine a time where most of the voters didn't even really know what a candidate looked like beyond drawings or campaign flyers. The only known photograph of Harrison was taken on his inauguration day. Otherwise, we're only left with paintings and etchings with which to get a sense of his appearance. Harrison in 1836 was the first presidential candidate to actively campaign, but even with that, only a small percentage of the public got to see him at all during either campaign, much less get a good look at him. Accounts from the ones who did, though, are telling. As early as June 11, 1840, Daniel Webster was writing about his concerns of whether, quote, an all-wise providence shall spare his, Harrison's, life. Kentucky Governor Robert Letcher, who had seen Harrison shortly after the election, wrote to John J. Crittenden about Crittenden's decision as to whether to remain in the Senate or to accept the offer to join Harrison's cabinet. Letcher warned Crittenden, quote, Suppose General Harrison should die before the 4th of March. What might be your condition then? On his way to Washington, Catherine McLean saw Harrison in Baltimore and described him as being, quote, very much broke and looking much older. Then William A. Graham wrote to his wife upon seeing Harrison after his arrival in D.C. that he, quote, seemed worn down with fatigue and had dispensed with the ceremony of shaking hands, owing to the hearty jars he had encountered on his journey hither. Despite this, his resilience in delivering his lengthy inaugural address seemed to alleviate some fears and led folks to believe that a quick trip down to Berkeley in Virginia had provided him with much-needed recuperation. Philip Hone, former mayor of New York City, saw him on the day before and just after the inauguration, and, though he noted in his diary on the 4th that the inaugural events had, quote, tried the old soldier's stamina, but he appears to stand it very well and seemed genuinely shocked in his diary entry after he learned of Harrison's demise. After his inauguration, Harrison was very active around D.C. He shopped on his own at the farmer's market, had some stag dinners at the White House, met late into the evening with his cabinet, and overall seemed to be doing well until close to the end. Then again, Henry Clay wrote to a couple of associates after the fact that Harrison's death, quote, does not surprise me much from what I observed of his habits and excitement. Could he have already been suffering an ailment and he pushed himself too hard upon taking office? At least for most casual observers, it seems as if it was unexpected, but it could have been that people who had an opportunity to be around him more might have picked up that something was amiss. As for Harrison himself, we have no way of knowing. I haven't found anything yet that he wrote to indicate that he felt ill. However, we do have the daily report from his doctor. On his first consultation on March 26th, he noted that Harrison, quote, complained of having been somewhat indisposed for several days, which he attributed to the great fatigue and mental anxiety he had undergone, stated that he had taken medicine, had been dieting himself, 
and believed he would soon be well again, that he had sent for me not to prescribe, being always his own physician in slight attacks, but to confer with me respecting some of the peculiarities of his constitution, which he thought it important that his physician should be aware of. Assuming there was no reason for Dr. Miller to falsify his report, this does suggest that Harrison knew something out of the ordinary was wrong with him, but that he had held out for a bit and chill throwing in the towel and bringing in an expert. There still seemed to be a bit of denial, though. Even he didn't truly believe that he could be a one-month president. And from everything that I've learned about him, had he thought that he may die in office, I don't think he would have run. That's my speculative two cents there, mind you. But he didn't seem to me like the type of person to try for something, unless he felt that he could see it through and succeed in it. Our next question is on the 1840 election. This listener asks, 80% turnout, but what percent of the overall did William Henry Harrison get? As a data person by trade, I love an opportunity to get into the numbers, so thank you, listener, for the opportunity. I promise to try not to make this answer too dry with too many numbers. As mentioned in an earlier episode, the voter turnout in the 1840 election was 80.2%, with 2,000,000 412,694 votes being cast. Harrison received 1,275,583 votes, or 52.87% of the vote. However, the Electoral College win was overwhelming. He won with 234 electoral votes to Van Buren's 60. Harrison won 19 states, with only 7 states going for Van Buren. I'll post a map on the blog, but the 7 states that went for Van Buren were Alabama, Arkansas, Illinois, Missouri, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Virginia. Van Buren received his highest percentage of the vote in Missouri, with 56.63% of the vote. By contrast, Harrison's was 64.2% in Kentucky. Missouri earned Van Buren 4 electoral votes. Kentucky earned Harrison 15. Another interesting fact, South Carolina did not have a popular vote at the time. Since the beginning of the government under the Constitution, its state legislature would decide how the electoral votes of the state were awarded in the presidential election, which led to some interesting choices, such as when in 1836, South Carolina awarded its 11 electoral votes to Wiley P. Mangum of North Carolina, the only state to do so. South Carolina would not have popular voting for the presidential election until after the Civil War. The next question is also on Harrison's death. Before I get to it, I did want to bring up something that you might have been wondering. Namely, why haven't I talked more about his death yet? I admit that it has been a conscious decision on my part. Since he's most known for dying, and the point of my project is to show that there is more to him than that, I decided to wait a bit before getting to it but I am planning a series of episodes that will end with his end on April 4th, 1841. Honestly, there is a good bit to discuss about his demise. Until then, my answers to these questions will have to satiate your curiosity. Speaking of which, the question is, how did the populace respond to his death? It goes without saying that there was a good bit of shock, as this was the first president to die in office. Washington had had a couple of scares during his tenure, and Jackson suffered from ill health off and on during his presidency, but the president had always recovered from illness. It also seems like this was perceived as being a very sudden event. Without modern communication methods or modern media scrutiny, even folks in Washington, D.C. didn't learn until close to the end that Harrison was even seriously ill, though he had first called for a doctor on March 26th 
and seems by his doctor's report on his treatment to have been bedridden since the 28th. One of the things that's been fascinating to me is about reading about when people learned of Harrison's illness and demise in a time just prior to the telegraph. After his death early on the 4th, the news spread around Washington, D.C. By the 5th, it was known in New York City. The next day, a rural part of Tidewater, Virginia had heard the news. Henry Clay had received word in Lexington, Kentucky by the 9th. By the 19th, Andrew Jackson knew in Nashville, Tennessee. It wasn't until the end of the month that the U.S. Minister to Britain, Andrew Stevenson, heard the news in London. In terms of official mourning and the funeral, there was no precedent. Alexander Hunter, a local merchant, took up the responsibility and made arrangements for a coffin to be built with a viewing window so that visitors could see the president. Black draping went up around Washington. The funeral was held at the White House on the 7th, followed by a procession to the Congressional Cemetery, where the body was stored in a vault until arrangements could be made to transport it back to Ohio. Newspapers across the nation added black borders to their pages in memoriam. Countless sermons and public eulogies were given from Savannah, Georgia to Middlebury, Vermont, and from Portland, Maine to Chicago, Illinois. I've only found two instances to date of people who didn't express sorrow at Harrison's death. Andrew Jackson quipped that, quote, a kind and overruling providence has interfered to prolong our glorious union and happy Republican system, which General Harrison and his cabinet was preparing to destroy. While William Cullen Bryant of New York asserted that he regretted Harrison's death, quote, only because he did not live long enough to prove his incapacity for the office of president. Overall, though, the public was shaken and seems to have been genuinely saddened at his loss, to the point that someone who had actually known him but was away in England at the time wrote to his wife that he was, quote, properly disgusted with the wonderful stories of his extraordinary recently discovered piety with which the newspapers are filled. As is often the case, it does seem that there was some sanctifying of Harrison and death that was unfaithful to who he was in life. A question came in about Tyler becoming president and goes as follows. Any good stories about Tyler being told and sworn in a la JFK LBJ? One of the most fascinating things to me about Tyler's assuming the presidency is that he wasn't in Washington at the time of Harrison's death. He had left town weeks before, despite the Senate still being in session when he left. To back up for a minute, it must be understood that the vice presidency was a minuscule office at the time. The Constitution only gave the vice president the role of presiding over the Senate, and George Washington had decided that was all the vice president should do. Who were his successors to argue with George Washington? Thus, two vice presidents had already died in office. George Clinton, no, not the one from P-Funk, and Elbridge Jerry, yes, the Jerry of gerrymandering. And one vice president, John C. Calhoun, had resigned. With those three events combined, the vice presidency since its inception 52 years prior to Tyler's assuming office had been vacant for a total of four years, or the equivalent of a whole presidential term. Indeed, when Tyler assumed the presidency, the vice president's office would then remain vacant until 1845, another three years and 11 months. It wouldn't be until the Nixon administration that a vacancy in the vice presidency was actually filled. But I'm going off track here. Tyler had returned back home to Virginia a few days after the inauguration. It was there that Fletcher Webster, the son and chief clerk to Secretary of State Daniel Webster, found him to deliver the news of Harrison's demise and to urge him to return to Washington. Naturally, Tyler got himself in gear and was in D.C. by the 6th. 
He was sworn into office in the parlor of the Indian Queen Hotel by William Cranch, Chief Judge of the D.C. Circuit Court, then met with his inherited cabinet. The thing was, this was the first time this had happened. No one knew what to do. They didn't even know if Tyler was the president. The actual text from the Constitution, Article 2, Section 1, reads that, quote, In case of the removal of the president from office, or of his death, resignation, or inability to discharge the powers and duties of the said office, the same shall devolve on the vice president until the disability be removed, or a president elected. Looking at it without precedent, it's understandable how some interpreted it to mean that the vice president would just become president until the next scheduled presidential election, while others felt that it meant the vice president would only serve as president in a temporary capacity until a new election could be called. Tyler, however, was having none of that. He took the former interpretation that he was now the president who would serve out the remainder of the elected presidential term. Soon after assuming office, he issued the equivalent of his inaugural address and made that point clear. As stressful and traumatizing as the Kennedy assassination was in 1963, can you imagine how worse it would have been if there had been any question that LBJ was going to be the president unquestioned? He had John Tyler to thank for that. Another listener asked about Harrison's relationship with Clay, which was discussed in a previous episode. The listener asked, when you mentioned that Harrison would prefer to communicate with Henry Clay via letter rather than in person, why was that? This question is in reference to episode 5 about the antebellum spoils system. While I can't definitively speak to Harrison's motivation for this, I think we can make some pretty solid assumptions. One must understand that Henry Clay was a smooth operator, political operator that is. He could charm men and women alike, so long as his Achilles heel didn't get in the way. As described by Clay Bog for Robert Remini, quote, his arrogance, his overbearing conceit, his presumptuousness eventually turned men against him. They recoiled from his brazen audacity. One must also understand Harrison's long history in American politics. Harrison and Clay were contemporaries and had traveled in the same circles for a long time. Harrison likely remembered how Clay had exerted his influence as Speaker of the House on then-President Madison and forced the hand of a reluctant president to bring the nation to war. And that was when Clay was still relatively new to the game. It's not beyond the pale to assume that Harrison had likely heard of comments that Clay would really be leading the nation upon Harrison's assuming office, and Harrison had no intention of being anyone's puppet. The call to communicate via letter was likely for multiple purposes. Having something in writing would limit what Clay would say as a letter could be used against a politician. It was also symbolically setting a division of power. The president would be at the executive mansion, and the senator would be at Capitol Hill unless formally summoned by one or the other. Additionally, the corrupt bargain charges between John Quincy Adams and Henry Clay from 1824 would forever taint Clay's name. Thus, it's easy to fathom why a man who had campaigned on being a simple, honest man might want to hold an ambitious man who was such a lightning rod at arm's length. I imagine that we'll have an entire episode devoted to Henry Clay at some point in the not-too-distant future. In the meantime, I thought I'd wrap up with a question for me. It's a question that I pose to myself quite often, which is namely, what are you doing this for, and what do you hope to get out of it? Honestly, this project started out with a simple suggestion repeated by numerous people over the years. Write about what you know. I've always been fascinated by presidential history, and when I began with a friend a multi-year project to read a biography on each president, I realized just how much I enjoyed 
and knew and wanted to know about presidential history. We're currently on Reagan as of September 2016, so obviously it's held my interest. The question then became what to write about. I've toyed with numerous other possibilities, including writing about the lesser-known characters of the Washington administration or some of the many forgotten but highly fascinating individuals in Grant's cabinet. But my mind always turned back to William Henry Harrison. As I've mentioned before, there isn't much written on him, and besides some of the prominent figures like Daniel Webster and Henry Clay, the period between Jackson and the Civil War is mostly brushed over, as if everything was leading to the war. However, the folks of that time, Harrison included, were just living. They had no definite clue that there was a future war to avoid. It'd be like future historians saying that from the Reagan era to 9-11, all the events were just a lead-up to 9-11. I wanted to get at the heart of the story of 1841 and the story of Harrison. He hadn't spent over half a decade working up to the presidency, just to die a month later. What did he want to accomplish? Who were the people who he was bringing on board to try to run the nation? Did he accomplish anything important in his month in office? Those were the questions that gnawed at me until I started looking into them. A couple of years down this road, and I'm still as fascinated as I once was. The more I research, the more I learn that I want to share. I hope this podcast has proved enlightening thus far, and I look forward to exploring more of the story as time goes on. My current plan for the podcast is to finish out the first 10 planned episodes. The Martin Van Buren episode is next, followed by a look at Harrison's family, then an in-depth look at his inaugural address. I may have to do a couple of less research-focused episodes in order to give myself time to finish up the next planned block of episodes, which will be on Harrison's life from birth to death. And yes, as mentioned earlier, I promise to devote the entire last episode of that series of episodes to his death. After that, we'll see where the journey leads us. Until next time, dear listeners and friends, take care and thanks for listening.